So this guy's walking down the street when he sees a man stepping out of a parked van. And the man says, I have 10 penguins in the back of this van, and I was on my way to take them to the zoo, but I ran out of gas. I'm curious if I gave you $20, would you take them to the zoo for me? The guy said, yeah, that'll be all right, I'll do that. A few days later, the man with the van was driving along the same street and saw this same guy walking down the street with all them penguins walking behind him. And he stopped and he says, hey man, I thought that, uh, I thought I gave you $20 to take them to the zoo. The guy says, yeah, we did that. We had a great time. As a matter of fact, we had such a good time that I figured today I'd take them bowling. friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville on a beautiful, beautiful day. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's a creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Mac Wiseman. Mac is a singer and a songwriter and a guitar player, and he's a bona fide legend. He's been voted into the Bluegrass Hall of Fame and the Country Music Hall of Fame. You can find out everything you need to know about Mac at MacWiseman.com. Max had such a long, wonderful career. He's been playing music professionally for over 70 years. It's a long time. And uh, he was one of the founding members of the Country Music Association back when there were less than 150 radio stations in the United States playing country music. We actually talked for a little bit off mic about Bean Blossom, Indiana. And I grew up close to there, and my grandfather would take me to see a lot of people. So I asked him if uh, he ever played the Bill Monroe Festival. And he said that he actually played the very first one and then quite a few after that. But we had a great response last week, and it's a true honor to be able to have him on the show. Here's part two of Mac Wiseman. The first records I made in Nashville with Bill, I did the last Columbia session with Bill. We did it down where the, the church studio down there off of... Uh, 16th Avenue Circle, but that was the only studio facilities in town, and this was 49. Then later, a couple of engineers up at RSM started Castle down the Tulane Hotel. I did a lot of recording there. And in 57, when I was producing Verdant Records uh, in Hollywood, I produced a lot of sessions there. Yeah, Tommy Jackson and Copas and Leroy Van Dyke. People like that, Jimmy Newman. There's a lot of great, great music that I uh, lived oh. stood the test of time that was recorded there. Absolutely. I've read that it was re- the studio was in the cafeteria section of the Tulane Hotel. I don't think it was a cafeteria. I think it was up on like a second or third floor, but it had been remodeled into a studio, like a control room and just one main studio. See, so the hotel effect wasn't there. Like uh, 
and uh, they'd go from Atlanta and Bristol and those places and get in a hotel and do sessions. But this was much more modern and was a this was before Bradley Studios. It was the first renowned studio in this town to my knowledge. I heard a little saying not long ago that uh, I'd like to put in here. Uh, Dwayne Allen of the Oak Ridge Boys, in a conversation, said, if you've done it, it's not bragging when you tell about things you've done in your life. So I tell this in all modesty. I worked Branson, Missouri, doing the morning show with, at the Willie Nelson Theater in the early 90s. And... Uh, Hank, I mean, uh, Grady Martin was working with Willie, and I stayed at a hotel within walking distance of the theater. So I wasn't on that night, but Willie was, and I went down just to visit. Grady was sitting out in his pickup truck, and uh, I stopped, and we were just visiting, and right out of the blue, he said, uh, I guess you know you're the greatest flat-top picker in the world. Well, I was speechless. The next morning, early... Merle Haggard came by with his pickup truck, took me to breakfast. And after breakfast, he said, I'd like you to go out the house and meet my new wife and my kids. So we went out there and we was picking and just fisting. And he said, uh, if you ever need somebody to go on the road, let me know. You, you're the greatest flat-top flat picker in the world. So those two great <laughs> guitar players, and I say that in all modesty and hope it don't hurt my arm, pat my own back, but <laughs> it, 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 going by the Dwayne Allen thing, it's the facts, so I tell it, you know. But Hank Garland and I were very close friends. I used him on a, a lot of things. Used him on mandolin with the Tommy Jackson session. He played guitar with me. And one incident I remember, uh, the Paramount Theater, would show uh, boxing matches off of TV and such as that. So one night, uh, I believe Lewis, Joe Lewis was fighting. But this was in the late 50s. And Hank called me and said, uh, let me take you to the Paramount Theater to see that Joe Lewis fight. Well, we went down. We're just a few minutes late getting there. And as we walked in, everybody was leaving. He done knocked him out. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my gosh. I must tell you, I think this is interesting. The first time I met Grady, he was working with uh, Curly Fox and Texas Ruby. I was on a radio station in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and our coverage went up as far as Hagerstown, Maryland, and they had a park up there called Conica Jig Park. That was a regular, he was very well-known. So I went up there with Lee Moore to play that Conica Jig Park, and Curly... Fox and Texas Ruby were on it, and Uncle Dave Bacon. And uh, the only band Curly had was Jabbo Arrington on guitar and Grady Barton. And they were both just kids. At th that's where I first met him. And then uh, we did a lot of sessions here in Nashville later, you know. And I knew him right up to his passing and uh, tried to sell each other some property a couple of times. <laughs> 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 well, uh, not really interaction, but my memory of it is he was there with Joan Baez and was just like a kid holding on to her coattail. She was introducing him around, see?
And uh, I became very well acquainted with her, and we uh, played a number of festivals like the Mariposa in Toronto and the Philadelphia Folk Festival with Taj Mahal and people of that caliber. But one of the highlights of the festival in Newport, and I played it many times, and after they brought it to New York, I played it at Carnegie Hall once. But uh, I saw the, quite a crowd gathered around a tree there at Newport and walked over to see what it was about. It was Mississippi John Hurt. They, everybody thought he was deceased, but they found him down in Mississippi on a street corner, and he was just sitting out there under a tree singing, entertaining the people, you know. That was a highlight for me. That had to have been beautiful. Oh, yeah. Wow. Did you uh, get to chat with him at all? Or No, I didn't. I really didn't. I would love to have, but uh, just wasn't any way to get to him conveniently without disturbing what he was doing, you know. Did you ever cross paths with Woody Guthrie by chance? No, but that's one of my deepest regrets. He and Burl Ives. Burl, I understand, was quite a fan of my records. And I was a greatly influenced by his early records, the Froggy Went to Court kind of things, you know, the kids' songs. But a good friend of mine knew him and worked, uh, visited him a lot in Washington State, and he said he and Burl had a number of conversations about me. Yeah, Well, Johnny did his first tour with me. I was on a 10-day tour in Florida with my group in the 50s when he came out with that hip porter, and he just had Marshall and uh, Luther. And his manager, or whoever was trying to set dates for him, Bob Neal, I think, maybe, called me and wanted to know if Johnny could come and play those dates for free just for the exposure. He was on the Little Sun label. So that's where uh, I got acquainted with Johnny. This was the mid-50s or early 50s, whatever he had, that Hay Porter thing. And uh, some years later, and I have this treasure, I have an 8 by 10 picture of he and I standing with him, his arm around my shoulder. He said, Mac, I had uh, two of these, thought you might like one. And he sent it to me from his home address in Memphis, and I treasure that. And I had the great pleasure of uh, recording three sides with him just a few weeks before his passing. I was sitting right here one Sunday afternoon, and he called and said, uh, how about coming out and visit with me? So he said his chauffeur over in the cold October evening and we went out to his studio, and he wasn't inside, but he had a bonfire built up outside. And we sat out there and visited and reminisced and, out of the blue, you said, you know how I start my day every day? And I said, I have no idea. He said, I listened to your Reveille Time in Heaven, a record of that. And I was stunned again. I said, John, we ought to do that. He said, would you record that with me? And uh, I uh, thought it was just a passing remark, even though I was very flattered. But a few weeks later, he called again and uh, so if I send my chauffeur over, you ready to come and record? What he'd done, and he showed me the letter he'd written to Rick Rubin, whom he was recording for, to be sure that Rubin would approve him doing duets with me. And he gave his consent, and uh, and so we did two. Did his uh, I Still Miss Someone and My Reverie Time in Heaven. And just a 
oh, ten days or so after June had passed. He called again, wanted if I want to do a little more recording. So I went out. We did uh, "Hold Fast to the Right," a song that we both learned from our moms years ago. They've never been released, but they've been mastered. So I'm led to believe they will be released. You know, that had to have been beautiful to be able to share something like that with an old oh, friend. Oh my gosh! Yeah, but uh, one thing I remember very clearly. Uh, Went out to play the Hollywood Bowl with the Johnny Cash show and the Carters and June and different ones. Don Gibson was on it. And Johnny lived up at Casita Springs, some 75 miles north of Los Angeles. So uh, Joe Allison and uh, June, and this was June and John just had a thing going. And uh, he was barbecuing a goat. Because his wife was from Mexico, they called it a casita or, or something like that. I don't know. But anyhow, he was barbecued a goat. And Johnny had instigated or started a little trend. After the meal, we'd all sit around his big living room, all the important people, and uh, pass the guitar around. And uh, Dick turns doing just two songs, so you would dominate the scene, you know. When it came to me, I took the guitar and sang a couple of songs, and Joe Allison, different ones, asked for a, a different song, you know. So I wound up kind of embarrassed by doing about five songs. And I didn't realize it, but the guy who booked the mint in Las Vegas was sitting in the same room. When I got back to uh, Nashville, it was a telegram here. He booked me three weeks at the mint in Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> in 63, this was. What was Las Vegas like in 1963? It was wonderful. That little mint theater was so different from the uh, Golden Nugget. The Golden Nugget was open. The stage was in the same room with the slot machines. and Just pretty noisy. Hank Thompson, a lot of them played there. But the little theater at the mint was just like a nice little theater with curtains and spotlights and because the only thing was allowed during in the auditorium at the time we were presenting the show was the ladies serving drinks, you know, with trees and stuff like that. I took the Stoneman family out there with me. They blew them away. They got their television show off of that exposure with me. It's interesting that they were that they uh, were booking country music and blue. Yeah, they had a. It was kind of a folk policy, like being in '63. Well, they booked Foley for three weeks, uh, Aka for three weeks, and I can't remember who some of the others might have been, but I fell into that category by being on the show with uh, with John at the Hollywood Bowl. But I started to tell about Maybell that night after the show and uh, with the, well, the dinner and the guitar pool, so to speak, up at Johnny's house, Maybell Carter... Jan and uh, her husband was such a big songwriter. Harlan Howard and Jan and Maybell and I came back down to Los Angeles. We walked on the beach quite a while. And we came back up to our to Sunset and Vine, where we were staying in the various hotels. And it was quite late in the evening. By this time, as we walked down the street, there was a little nightclub. No step up or nothing. just opened up right back into the club off of the street, you see. 
think last in there in uh, Holmes Mabley was doing her evening show. Well, it was pretty dull and dead. Uh, by that time, everybody was thinking about something else, you know. But we walked in, and she just knocked us out. We got to laughing and applauding, and she knew she had some live ones, so she turned it on. But that was the most enjoyable evening that they did. When you first met her, were you a little bit starstruck? Oh, definitely so. Definitely so, because I'd sung so many of their songs. I had the pleasure of working and knowing the old Mr. A.P. When I was in Bristol in 1947, he would drive over from Holston Valley every day and do a five-minute show, just do like two songs, a part of two songs, and sell little pocket testaments. And we'd go out between those shows and sit on the street when the weather permitted, and I'd pick his head. I was afraid to ask too many questions fear he'd run me off. <laughs> <laughs> but he was very cordial and uh, quite stern, but uh, I treasured that. And then another time, uh, I played the Carter Fold for Jeanette, and uh, CBS Network came up from Atlanta and was shooting a documentary. And, and right at dusk time, they had me go up to the cemetery where Mr. A.P. was buried and sing a little song that he would have been familiar with, you know. He'd been passed a number of years before that, but it was by his grave commemorating him, you see. And it was played several times on the CBS network, you know. And I did the Dean Martin show four or five times. And did his shows where they come around on uh, tour. And I did one at the studio in Hollywood with him. Sang a trio with he and Petula Clark. <laughs> she had that big hit of downtown. And I'm trying desperately to find that footage. I say a couple of. Dipsy Russell was there, sat beside me up on the dais, you know. And he was quite flattering. He was very familiar with my repertoire from being down in Mississippi. <laughs> yeah. Did you have any inter interaction with Dean Martin at all? No, I did. He only came in and I could show it on the show. He'd come wandering in yeah. as they were playing the theme and yeah. and leave immediately after. He didn't mingle, you see. But he, I, I was in Wheeling, West Virginia, running that jamboree in the late 60s and early 70s. He was up in Steubenville, Ohio, about 30 miles up the road, and had quite a reputation as a pool chart and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very vivid uh, memory to me as well. I was always invited to Earl Scruggs' birthday parties in the early January. And uh, David Ferguson, who was an engineer for Cash and did the sessions I did with John, was also at a studio down uh, over on German Hill, Germantown, with John Prine in the basement of a building over there. Well, Fergie was at this Earl Scruggs party, and he told me, he said, John told me to tell you if you didn't come see me, he's going to kick your hind end. So uh, that week I was flattered to go with and we sat down there and sang a couple of songs. He pitched me a number of songs he'd written. And when I got back to the house uh, a day or so later, he called me and said, uh, I think we ought to do a, an album together. What do you think? Well, it took me about 30 seconds to say yes to that, you know. <laughs> so we went down there and just had a wonderful time, picked songs. We decided we neither one 
pick a song that we had recorded before. And he came here, we sat down and decided we'd each pick out 15 songs and then come back and match them. We had eight or 10 of the same identical ones. So I went down there and recorded it live at his studio. And did things like uh, the old Big Crosby theme of When the Blue of the Night and uh, some Elvis songs. My last concert when I retired was seven years ago. This is uh, 14 now. I did it at the Skirmahorn Symphony Hall. John and I did it together. And we still keep in touch. He has his boat out here on the lake, and when he comes out there to do maintenance or sail around, he'll come by and visit with me a bit, you know. And he's married to a lady from Ireland, and uh, they spend a month over there every year, like June or something after the kids are out of school. And he's told me a number of times about uh, he and his wife, whatever dating, rode around over Ireland playing my records on the car radio. <laughs> That's got to feel good. Yeah. One other member, a little occasion, I played Belfast. I already played a lot of dates over there, but uh, played Belfast. And uh, the uh, equivalent of the chief of police was a friend of mine and a fan. And it was during the great turmoil they had. So he, it was, hotels were bombed out downtown. And uh, he made a race for me to stay with some friends of his. And <laughs> It was amusing. He had a sign on the door, Mac Wiseman slipped here, <laughs> like George Washington. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, he would. He took me down to the shipyard. I didn't realize it, but he took me to the shipyard where the Titanic was built. I didn't. I thought it was built in South, Southampton. That's where it's at, it's for sale. But they was having the riots when I was there. We played in a hall right in Belfast. Had the windows blackened just like it did during the war. And the security was called away three times during my concert to go quell uprisings or turmoil or whatever. Well, do you remember the first time that you uh, flew over to Europe to play? Yeah, I remember it very well. I played that Wembley show. In the 50s, I had a number of number one records in England and Scotland and Ireland. It was Wembley Stadium? I played there, yeah. One time we had such a big package, Bomber Mandrell and uh, Glazers and people like that. And the MC came to me and said, now you got 18 minutes, no more and no less. And they had a little rock band backing me, but they were very good. And so I went up there, I didn't even say howdy. I just started hitting songs. I had 18 minutes, you know. And when, it was old, when I did my 18 minutes, I strolled off and back to the dressing room. The people would not sit down. He had to come back and get me with the sweet revenge. <laughs> but they were standing up stomping on that wood floor. And I had to go back and do a couple of more songs. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I did a lot of shows in England. Did one 10-day tour with Bill Anderson and I. And I always had a great desire to go to Japan. Where my records are very successful. But I always wanted to tie Australia in with it. And it, it never worked out to where I could make both of them on the same tour, you know. But my records were popular enough in Japan that when Dot started phased them out, Japan leased those old masters. And uh, years later, when they'd have an order or two for 
my albums, they'd have to get them from Japan. <laughs> Vice versa. <laughs> Thank you very much for uh, inviting me into your living room and sharing yeah. stories with me. Thank you, sir. It's a great honor for me. I really mean that. Well, thank you. My pleasure. I've enjoyed it very much. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Mac Wiseman for inviting me into his home here in Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about Mac at MacWiseman.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to OtisGibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review, leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.